The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, welcome, Gil, to our um, new question and answer session with you answering questions from the IMC online community. Great. Nice to um, see you again, Marguerite. And thank you. And so we have quite a few questions today, starting with uh, Freja from Santa Cruz. She says, right now I'm losing my father, who has always been the person I love most in the world. I am so terrified that I have been feeling extra motivated to sit. But part of me is not at all conf confident that I can make it through this. It feels like this is one time where I cannot accept and look at my feelings in the eye, face the loss head on, and let it be. It's too much. I feel like my grief is going to destroy me. What are your thoughts? So thank you for the question. and. Uh, my heart goes out to you with you losing your father. That's a big loss. And um, I think when there's losses that big of a parent or of a child or a spouse, it's completely natural to feel uh, like it's too much, that the grief is going to destroy you. And um, it's a very common feeling. And, um, and to be idealistic, that you, that thinking that you're supposed to be able to cope with it or manage with it, is probably going too far. It adds a second arrow. It adds more suffering and more confusion, more distress. Uh, you know, you're not asked. You're not expected to be able to hold the grief or manage with the grief. The grief has its own life, its own pattern, and you're lucky to have a meditation practice. And if you can just sit with it and sit still and upright, and let whatever feelings come and go through you. And if one of, and some of those feelings are that you can't manage with it, let those feelings go through you as well. Uh, those feelings, the idea is that I can't manage, this is too much for me, this is overwhelming. Um, that's impermanent, that's part of the process as much as anything else. You don't have to take it too seriously, those thoughts, as long as you sit there and sit still and upright and let it go through you. The, the meditation posture uh, is your refuge and um, it's not up to you you just have to keep showing up and if you feel like you can't show up that, that's part of it as well just just stay in the practice stay with it and um, uh, grief is an unfolding that is best best unfolds if we can in some ways get out of the way and um, and many 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 people have gone through this before and have gone through to the other side, but it takes its time as we respect the very, it's a very deep, deep process that loss puts us through. And it's important to be very respectful to it, and in the process to be very kind and, and, uh, and generous to yourself during this time. And uh, it takes time, and uh, it's more a matter of time and allowing than it's a matter of you having the skills to know exactly how to cope with it wisely. Thank you, Gil. Our next question is from Pooja in New Delhi, India. During the day, my attention awareness of the body varies in degrees, and most times I am aware of fine, subtle sensations that are sweeping through the body. When I'm talking to someone, I find these subtle sensations 
fade out in the background of my attention? What is the best way to keep the mind in the body as I pursue daily activities? Mm -hmm. So great, that's a wonderful question. And uh, I think uh, keeping the attention centered in the body is an important part of uh, living a wise life. Uh, our body, our posture, our sensations in the body give us uh, lots of information of what's going on in our reactions. It helps us to keep uh, stay balanced. It helps us from getting too caught up in our reactions and our thoughts and interpretations of what's going on. And it also, the body is a wonderful vehicle f for empathy. We really can, uh, through the body is how we best feel um, the hearts of other people. We feel what they're going through and we feel our heart as well. So I think it's a great thing to do. As we stay with the body, I think it's important not to have some particular idea about what it's supposed to be like to be mindful of the body. There certainly are times when there could be a lot of subtle sensations that a person can feel and can feel very satisfying and meaningful to feel that. But uh, there are times when uh, subtle sensations are not happening or not available. And that's not a mistake or a problem. Um, then the body is uh, manifesting in a different way. And the task of mindfulness is to be present for how it is and learn from that, not about how you think it should be. So, uh, and when life gets more complicated, like when we're talking with people or engaged in activities we have to do in the world, um, you know, a good part of our attention is going to go in the conversation, paying attention to the other person. Um, and so the attention is not available to, to pay attention to all the subtleties going on in the body. Um, so having said that, um, uh, it's helpful to come back to your body as much as you can and have a sense of not of res residing in your body, abiding in your body. Um, when you're listening to someone, as if you're listening not through your ears, but listening through your chest, listening through your torso, listening through your body. Uh, as you speak, to uh, uh, not speak so much from your thoughts or your mind, uh, your opinions, not speak from even from your voice box, but feel like you're speaking from your again, from your torso or from deep inside. Uh, and one of the ways to uh, uh, pay attention to this is to notice if you're tense or relaxed. And if you're relaxed, and then speak from the relaxed place, then you're more likely going to be in your body. If you, if you speak or engage in the world with tension, then often we leave the body, or not so connected to the body in a useful way. So a really useful way of staying in your body is to uh, focus on the simple, aspects. Is the body tense? Is the body relaxed? Are you aware of the body or are you not aware of the body? And simply being aware of the body, that's enough. Um, you don't have to have some uh, particular idea of what you're supposed to notice in the body. It's, uh, it's a big step just to know that you're in the body. Thank you. Janelle in Munising, Michigan uh, wants to know, our Dharma Friends group is interested in degree opportunities related to Vipassana and Theravada Buddhism. We noted that Naropa is perhaps the most well-known U.S. Buddhist university. However, its roots are Shambhala. What would you suggest for someone interested in a degree program centered in Vipassana tradition? So it depends what the person wants to do uh, with a degree. Uh, I mean, if, if a person wants to become a scholar and uh, of the Theravadan tradition, 
then they should go probably to more of a research university where they can study poly and um, and engage in the kind of uh, uh, kind of academic uh, form of uh, scholarship. But if the person wants to get a, a more of a, a general education in Theravadan Buddhism, um, uh, without kind of necessarily following the scholarly direction, uh, then um, that's a different question. Go to a different place. For more of the academic approach, the um, there are not a lot of places in the United States uh, where you can do poly studies, um, but um, um, in Chicago, at the University of Chicago, there's a professor there by the name of, um, I forget his name now, um, but um, uh, who does poly, stu- poly studies, who's uh, quite good. Um, there's not a lot of places to go to do academic work, but there are a number of uh, departments in the country, uh, uh, religious studies departments, that have strong Buddhist studies departments. University of California in Los Angeles has it, University of California, Berkeley, University of uh, Virginia, uh, Columbia University um, has it, and uh, sometimes Bloomington, Indiana, University of Indiana has had it, I don't know, currently. Uh, Sometimes University of Hawaii has had a strong Buddhist studies uh, department. Um, So there's a variety of places to go. Um, But in terms of something like Naropa, uh, which may be... uh, there is no Theravadan University or Theravada College where it specializes it in the way that maybe Naropa does. Naropa is still a good place to study. Um, uh, people from any Buddhist tradition can benefit from that. In Berkeley, California, there's the Institute of Buddhist Studies, which comes from the Japanese Pure Land Buddhist tradition. And uh, even though it's the Japanese Buddhism is the foundation of it, they have a wide range of classes in uh, Buddhism, and some of them are Theravadan Buddhism. So it's a good it's a good place to get a good education, um, and in the long term, uh, here in Redwood City, the Sati Center, which I'm involved in, it has a vision to create a master's degree program in uh, Theravadan Buddhist studies, um, and but that's probably several years away uh, that uh, until we can get that uh, organized. So that's what I know for now. Thank you, David in New York. It says that music is both my passion as well as my career. For a long time, I have been confused on how to hold music. I know that just like most things, one can become very attached to it. I am very guilty of this. Is music just a sensual desire? How can I hold music in a way that supports a path of mindfulness? Thank you for the question. And the way to hold music in a way that supports the path of mindfulness is to be mindful of what it's like to play music, is to bring your mindfulness to what you're doing when you're playing music. Um, Because if you look at yourself and uh, are very mindful of what happens as you play music, then that becomes the path. You'll begin understanding yourself. Uh, You'll see if there is attachment, you'll see the attachments. And uh, then you can slowly work on the attachments and let go of that which uh, where the attachment is. What you don't want to do is throw out the baby with the bathwater. The fact that there might be some attachment connected to music doesn't mean that that's all that's going on. And there could be other uh, very significant motivations to play music. Uh, one of them, it could be uh, almost like a natural expression of creativity, of intimacy, of connectedness, uh, of beauty that uh, is a, brings you joy, brings, uh, brings, helps you bring joy to others. Um, 
it can sometimes music can express some uh, people's uh, deeper inner life, deeper spiritual life, even in a way that maybe nothing else does. Um, it's one thing to, for example, to meditate and have some deep inner life. It's another thing to give expression to that inner life. And sometimes music and artistic endeavors is a beautiful way of expressing and therefore reinforcing and developing that inner life as well. If all your music has to do with, uh, uh, you know, drugs, sex, and uh, and status, then perhaps uh, you know it's not going to necessarily address the inner life in some deep way. So you need to look at what you do when you play music, uh, what your music ex- expresses, what motivates your music. Uh, what are the consequences of playing music when you play it, uh, when you're with music? You know, uh, be involved with your music, and then um, uh, when you're not doing it, uh, has it supported you? Has it drained you? Uh, what's the consequences of it? So the way to make it the path of practice is to bring your mindfulness to your music making and your music activity, and uh, really study with that and be honest about what goes on. And... Um, and I'm confident if you do that, you'll find your way with music. And if music is a important, integral part of your life, it'll remain that way. And if in that process you find out that it's not integral, um, then perhaps you'll have the courage to let go of it. Thank you. Mitch, uh, in Cary, North Carolina, uh, says, One time I, when I attended a Kadampa center in my area, I noticed that the teachers, monks, and nuns wear special robes. Would you be willing to speak about the style of dress of those who visit the IMC in person and the usefulness of various styles of dress for both lay people and others? Uh, IMC is a a lay Buddhist uh, community and I'm a lay Buddhist teacher. And so, uh, we kind of the kind of the approach of IMC is to offer uh, uh, hopefully the depth of Buddhist practice and um, the practice of meditation and mindfulness in the teachings uh, without um, the uh, support or without the the clothing of any particular kinds of clothes, any particular kinds of rituals, any particular kinds of chanting. Um, it's kind of uh, we're kind of pared down to a very simple, hopefully very direct and deep expression of the Dharma without a lot of the extra stuff that some of it which is cultural coming out of different cultures in Asia and some of it comes from um, and the usefulness of having people clearly identified as being religious, as being people who've stepped out of the normal roles in society and are there as clergy or, or as uh, spiritual teachers in some other way. So here at IMC, there is no special clothes to wear. Um, uh, I sometimes often wear blue jeans when I teach. Um, You know, I wear a shirt. Um, You know, know the clothes I wear is not so different from anybody else who comes to IMC. Um, And there's no expectation that people dress in any particular way. The only thing we say is that it's useful when you meditate to wear clothes which are loose-fitting. So they don't the clothes don't constrict your legs or something as you meditate. Um, when I was a monk, of course, then I wore uh, monastic robes, and I found it was really useful to uh, uh, to wear robes in, in the way that some people find it useful to wear a big shawl around their shoulders. There's something about the way robes or big blankets um, hold us or kind of 
kind of contain us or make us feel sometimes more intimate or, or held um, or, or so almost like as if the blood or the energy can flow more freely like especially with robes um, uh, it's different than if we're, or if we're a pants and we're kind of divided in the midline with our belts uh, so sometimes it's kind of, kind of uh, physiologically feels nice to wear robes, and sometimes wearing religious clothes uh, reminds us of our intentions and makes us feel a little bit more intent or serious about our practice and feel more connected to it than if we wear our ordinary clothes. So there are times it's useful, but then wearing special clothes is also sometimes not useful because sometimes it creates a status difference, and sometimes people hide behind their, their religious clothes and and uh, get attached thinking they're special and unique because they're religious. And they're not really that special, but they're hiding or holding it up in some way. And then people start comparing themselves to each other, like that person's better than me, uh, that person's more holy than I am. And so some of the unfortunate consequences of wearing robes um, are, you know, don't really happen here at IMC. But then at the same time, some of the benefits of wearing special clothes also doesn't happen. So that's how it is at IMC. Thank you. Susan from St. Kilda in Australia would like to ask how to make sense of and let go of the self-consciousness which accompanies most of my meditations. I am aware of myself guiding the meditation and aware of being aware of breathing, not just aware of breathing. I think of this as self-consciousness, which piggybacks on my meditation. And I would like to know, what produces it? Do most meditators experience it? How can one escape it? And does it compromise meditation? That's a great question. It may or may not compromise meditation. Uh, Self-consciousness usually means some kind of self-preoccupation or some tension around the sense of self. And um, and it's not uncommon. It, sometimes it takes the form if people are watching their breath in meditation that they get self-conscious about their breathing and they start controlling it or worrying about it, get anxious about it. And uh, um, sometimes uh, the self-consciousness can take the form of kind of monitoring their meditation too much and judging themselves. Uh, I'm a good meditator. I'm a bad meditator. How am I, how am I doing as a meditator? And the whole kind of idea of defining oneself or uh, as a meditator um, uh, uh, brings up a lot of tension or anxiety for people that gets in the way of relaxing into the meditation itself. So how to work with that kind of self-consciousness? I mostly recommend um, using mindfulness to study it, to not make a problem of the problem. Um, And so rather than thinking that it should be different, it's more useful to think oh, th- that this is something to bring our attention to and get to know better. A lot of freedom comes f- uh, from um, really seeing deeply what's actually happening. And if what's happening is some attachment, some self-consciousness, then it's your task to really become uh, turn towards that and get to know it. Feel what it's like in the body, feel what emotions come along, um, see if you can recognize what beliefs are there. Uh, learn to step back, in a sense, and not struggle with the self-consciousness, but see it for what it is. And chances are, if you do it that way, the self-consciousness will fade by itself and relax. Um, um, but if you continue to see self-consciousness as a problem, 
That might be the very thing that fuels it, that keeps it going. Now, there is a different kind of uh, attention that maybe you're referring to here, and that is uh, you can be aware of being aware. Uh, and um, um, uh, and there doesn't have to be self-consciousness with that. It could just be a kind of uh, part of mindfulness. There can be mindfulness of things, and there can be mindfulness of mindfulness operating, kind of metta or overarching kind of awareness. And it's very interesting to allow for that and to notice if, if, if there's no self-consciousness involved in that, to notice that probably that aware, awareness of awareness is more relaxed, more spacious, more open than the awareness, you, the primary awareness that you have. And um, it's kind of a heightened presence that's going on. Uh, sometimes it takes the form of uh, you know that you know. And uh, there's freedom to be found in that kind of knowing that you know. So you might experiment a little bit and look around and see if you can tell the difference between uh, self-consciousness and a more freeing, clear, luminous, or open kind of awareness. You're so present that you know that you know. Thank you. Cindy in Palo Alto is interested in the landscape of the mind around food. What tools can we use around insight to help cope with health issues around food, things such as cravings or sufferings around food? Well, that's a great question. A lot of people suffer around food, and uh, there's a number of books now written about mindfulness and insight practice and food. Um, uh, Ronika Batsnik wrote a book called The Zen of Eating, and even though it's called the Zen of Eating, it's, uh, I think that was the publisher who titled that because of the popularity of Zen, but it's really an insight meditation book um, about uh, eating. And um, the, um, I think that mindfulness can help a lot, and it can, uh, one of the ways it helps is that it helps us to notice our impulses when they occur. Our, uh, so when the impulse to eat or to eat particular things arises, is to notice when that arises and to know it, know, know it really well, to figure out some way to kind of, in a sense, stop and really recognize, acknowledge that the impulse is there before we act on it. And then if that acknowledgement is made, if you stop, clearly acknowledge, um, and then instead of acting on it, um, uh, consider what your other choices are. Sometimes um, the choice, the most useful choice might be to walk away from the refrigerator. Um, do, do something different. Go get some exercise. Call up a friend. Uh, do something that is wholesome and healthy, that uh, uh, is a, a healthy alternative to pursuing the, the food. Another possibility, another choice you have, is to go find some place quiet to sit, or go for a little walk, and really look more deeply at what's going on behind the impulse to eat. Uh, is it simply addictive behavior where you're uh, pursuing a pleasure? Um, it, or is it uh, uh, motivated by loneliness or anxiety or fear? Is it a way of distracting yourself from yourself? Is it some way of comforting yourself because of inse underlying insecurity? And to really kind of stop and very respectfully and gently uh, uh, don't give in to the impulse, but look more deeply. Be really present for it. 
And as you do it, I think it's important to do it in a loving way, in a caring way, in a, in a kind way. Um, it's not necessarily easy, but it's really important work. And if you can do it with kindness, um, then uh, the inner world around eating can open up in a fuller, nicer way. We discover what's going on. Um, if the craving is really, really intense around an addiction, or if it could be around food, um, then there's a wonderful practice, I think, a difficult practice that can be done. And that is called, I call it riding out the desire. And this would entail feeling the very strong impulse and then going, sitting down in an easy chair somewhere. And commit yourself to not moving, not getting out of the easy chair until the impulse, the craving, has passed. And it can be very intense, uh, and all the lawyers of the mind can come up and argue why you have to have the food or have to have the addiction now. And it, sometimes if it's addiction is strong enough, it can feel like you're going to die if you're not going to get it. But you're committed to not giving it, just staying in your seat, staying in the easy chair, and letting the intensity of the craving get stronger and stronger, as strong as it needs to get. And at some point, you'll discover that you've uh, you, that you rode out the wave to the other side, that somehow the wave has passed, and you find yourself in the back side of the wave, and uh, it less, the intensity lessens and then dissipates. And to go through a few times the, the uh, escalating of the impulse, the strength of it, not giving into it, and seeing it, that you can go to, uh, see it to the other end, the other side, is very empowering. It brings a lot of confidence that we have the ability and begins to undermine the authority that uh, our addictions sometimes have. So you might try that. If, it's, you're, if your craving is strong enough, uh, find a nice easy chair and ride it out. Thank you. Uh, next question is from David in Redwood City, who wants to know if it's possible to follow the Eightfold Path well and still suffer. Is it the only way to end suffering? So, um, it's one thing to follow the Eightfold Path, to be on it, and another thing to complete it. And um, there, it's possible to be very diligent in the Eightfold Path and do a very good job of following the different steps. But those are really the foundation for, uh, for, that allows the heart or the mind to let go in a very deep way. And that letting go is what's needed to really end suffering. But we can't... That, the deepest letting go that needs to happen is not, our, not something we choose, it's not something we can actually do with our self-conscious self. Um, more like we put the conditions in place. Now, the eighth, following the Eightfold Path will certainly lessen suffering a lot. Um, but uh, it doesn't... And sometimes uh, certainly lessens the suffering of causing further harm. Uh, if you follow the Eightfold Path, you, hopefully you won't have the additional suffering of regrets you've done, harm you've caused in the world. You'll learn how not to add more suffering to yourself uh, by following the Eightfold Path. But sometimes there are really deep um, issues in a person's life that um, are very hard to address, um, even with the Eightfold Path. Sometimes uh, other approaches are needed. Sometimes psychotherapy is helpful. Uh, sometimes um, there are particular actions we need to do in the world that um, uh, will help. Um, and um, 
so I wouldn't rely on the Eightfold Path as the only path to deal with particular forms of suffering. But the Eightfold Path is a powerful path for dealing with some of the deepest attachments we have. And the deepest attachments are not for, not released through the Eightfold Path, but the release happens uh, because of the foundation the Eightfold Path provides. Now, are there other paths to release suffering? There are other, as I said, there are other paths to release particular sufferings. Psychology, psychotherapy is necessary for some people to address things that uh, particular issues that maybe are not best addressed through meditation. Uh, I've known people who thought that meditation was supposed to address all their problems, and it was very inefficient. They would have been much better off doing some kind of therapy. Um, and um, so, for particular particular issues, uh, there might be other things that need to be addressed. For um, uh, whether the full liberation from suffering the Buddhism promises can be found outside the Eightfold Path, um, I kind of doubt that. Uh, however, we should be careful not to assume that the way other people live the Eightfold Path looks like the Buddhist Eightfold Path. If we think about it and analyze it, we might say, oh yes, uh, we find the Eightfold Path in, uh, in a person's life, but um, they might not, not, never have thought about it in that, fr- in that framework. And so it doesn't occur to them that that's what they're doing. But I think for the deepest level of, of uh, freedom, the Eightfold Path is necessary because the Eightfold Path is basically a, each step of the path is a path, is a step in not causing harm. And there's no liberation without ending uh, uh, causing harm to oneself or to others. Thank you. The next question uh, is from James in New Zealand, who says that he's been experiencing anxiety for a while, and for me it manifests in my face, neck, and shoulders in the form of muscle tension. Unfortunately, I have come to associate this tension with a change in facial appearance and have labeled this tension a negative thing, which then causes a lot more anxiety because I fear I am now destroying my appearance from the effects of the anxiety. It is very circular and emotionally negative quite fast. So I'm wondering, within the framework of mindfulness meditation, how should I treat these anxiety symptoms and the emotional reaction to them? Mm. Well, thank you, James. I think that was quite uh, astute of you to see the circular pattern, how these things work. Um, And uh, many times we get caught in circular loops where we keep reinforcing certain patterns, and um, and also it's uh, it's uh, useful to see that uh, some of the emotional holding patterns we have do, does have physical uh, consequences in how we look and how we hold ourselves. Uh, someone who's angry a lot there's a certain expression that gets built up and stored in their face. If they're angry all the time, then those muscles of anger kind of get stronger and stronger, and it affects kind of their how they look. And it doesn't look necessarily so beautiful to see someone who's always angry. Uh, and anxiety can do that too. Um, now it's, you know, to be anxious about being anxious, you know, is one of the things that perpetuates the cycle. So the question is, how do we end the, the cycles of, of suffering, of clinging, of anxiety, if it kind of builds on itself? And um, sometimes it's... Um, uh, 
uh, it, it's, it's useful to do other things besides being mindful. Sometimes mindfulness uh, gives us more information to be anxious about. So sometimes uh, in meditation, doing a concentration practice can be useful where we kind of cut through the cycle. Part of the function of concentration is to is to uh, commit the mind to the breath, for example, and just keep on coming back to the breath and be with the breath and try to be concentrated in the breath so to break the pattern of being preoccupied by different patterns of uh, anxiety or whatever's going on in the mind. And... Uh, or sometimes it's uh, uh, doing loving-kindness practice as a concentration practice can also cut through the pattern. Um, so for some people that works, and then uh, once the mind is concentrated and calm, then it might be more useful to open the mind up to be present for the anxiety without getting caught in its orbit, being pulled into it. And so then, uh, once you're not caught in the anxiety, then to look at it carefully, look at it kindly, lovingly, um, and... Uh, and see if you can hold it in a non-reactive attention. Feel it in your body and see if something can begin to relax. Or, or look at it deeply enough to be able to see what's the source of the anxiety. Is it particular beliefs? Is it particular uh, unresolved um, sufferings that you've carried with you maybe for a lifetime? Is it, uh, you know, what's really going on in some deeper way? Um, so those two things. So sometimes it's useful to ignore it uh, in order to cut through the problem and, um, and then come back to it later. And sometimes it's useful to uh, turn towards the very thing, issue we're concerned about and hold it in mindfulness. So I wish you well, James. Thank you, Gil. This concludes our session for the day. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, everyone. I appreciate getting these questions and feeling a connection with people all over the world. And, um, and uh, it's quite marvelous that there are people who have such uh, great interest in the practice and such wonderful questions. Um, I think that for people who want to practice Buddhism or practice mindfulness, um, having a habit of asking questions is a really good habit. And uh, not only asking questions of teachers, but asking questions of yourself. And, uh, and then exploring the questions and coming up with your own best... Uh, Responses to your own questions is an important part of the path. So thank you all.